UX World. UX World. UX World. UX World. Branding with the big faces. I love listening to it. Kane Sims. Kane Sims. Kane Sims, the one and only. Britain's finest, Mr. Kane Sims. Dustin. Dustin. Dustin Coates. I like it when you guys are together and talking about boys. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Ah, there we go. It's working. I put a different overlay on when I was trying to turn the video off. But here we are, <laughs> boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to VUX World. Uh, absolute pleasure. We've got a little bit of a panel going on today, Dustin. Yes, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be interesting. Definitely excited to have you both along, Pear and Roger. Um, where do we start? Where do we start? Let's 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 do some intros, shall we? Let's let's kick off. Pear, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and a bit about Artificial Solutions and what you're working on over there? Absolutely. So... Um... I've been in the automation space since 1998. Uh, initially, that was IT automation, gradually moving into, and since 2015, into natural language processing and the automation around that, uh, uh, working with uh, Emilia, or the IPsoft platform, for the last few years. And uh, since November of 2020, I've taken over Artificial Solutions as CEO where we are rebuilding ourselves into a Microsoft ecosystem uh, participant where we're making the Lewis platform even better together with our platform, Tineo. Um, and yeah, I think I'll, I'll leave it over to Roger there, who is uh, partially the reason why I am at Artificial, so I'll, I'll explain a, a bit more about that later. So. Indeed, that'll be interesting. Roger, welcome to VUX World. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you're doing at Swisscom? Yeah, sure. I've joined Swisscom some 13 or 14 years ago, and I spent a lot of time in the banking area doing some e-banking and security stuff. But about three years ago, I started to be more and more interested in AI, machine learning, and in particular in, in uh, natural language understanding. So I joined this newly formed unit, and for three years now, we have built chatbots, voice bots in different areas uh, for Swisscom mainly. Uh, Swisscom is uh, Switzerland's largest telecommunication provider with um, wireline and uh, mobile phone connectivity, as well as TV, uh, a broad TV offering. And and why why is it then that uh, that Roger is at Artificial Solutions yeah. in some part down to you? Also, Pear is at Artificial Solutions. Yeah. Sorry, I was looking at I was I was looking at Roger when I was asking the question. I'm looking at Roger's name. Yeah, so Go on. I, I mean, we we um, we met early on in the, when Roger started this uh, this journey on uh, on conversational AI at Swisscom, and the thing that I started to realize was that our industry had moved into uh, what I like to call the enterprise. We build it for you we run it for you and we maintain it for you in like a black box type solution. And it was a good reason for that because those conversational AI solutions are quite complex. If you make mistakes in the beginning, then at the end of the, uh, the implementation, you'll find that you will not be able to scale or you will have overreach or you will, have, um, you, you, uh, will not get the results that you're looking for. So um, what Swisscom was doing is they were building a lot of components themselves and then reusing other components such as Microsoft's components. And then they were looking for a platform that could sort of check into all of that and, and provide them with basically the functionalities they needed to stitch all that together. And, um, and uh, they chose artificial solutions, which is how I initially came into contact with, uh, with uh, the company and the owners of the company. So it's a, it's a very interesting approach that Swisscom took which I believe more and more companies are taking now um, as companies are choosing basically between the large cloud ecosystems uh, as a sort of basis for their conversation AI. So that's the story behind it. Interesting. And so Roger, Pear was saying there that you were using Microsoft kind of in part. What, what What's the kind of history been like at Swisscom and why did or how did you arrive at Artificial Solutions? What have you tried in the past and what kind of things were working, what weren't working? How, how did you how did you arrive at Artificial mm -hmm. Solutions? Yeah, well, we started off with um, 
fairly simple um, applications like an email catch and dispatch system, which uh, we train some classifiers for to understand which use cases a customer writing about and where is the appropriate mailbox to route this is request to. Um, these, these classifiers were custom built, they were custom trained, and so we had a lot of training data available um, to do that. But as the journey went on as we traveled this journey, we um, came more and more into ASR, speech recognition, and there obviously you need a much, much bigger amount of data to actually train your classifiers, to train your, your speech recognition. And um, in Switzerland in particular, we've got the four official languages, which is uh, German, um, in, in fact, a Swiss German, which is a very particular dialect of, of, of the normal German, then high German is an official language, um, French and Italian must all be supported. Plus we've got a lot of English speakers in Switzerland, so we also wanna um, address our services or make our services usable for them. So we had to support four main languages plus the Swiss German dialect. So it was merely impossible to really do it all by ourselves. And then we did some due diligence on the ASR area where we found uh, Microsoft to be most suitable for our purposes. And the, the speech recognition is just one area. We also still use uh, classifiers. There we mainly still go for home, homegrown stuff, which we train ourselves. But then you also needed to have, in order to build a proper dialogue platform, you also needed to have a dialogue management system. And this is where Amelia, Teneo, and many other platforms came um, came into uh, uh, into the topic, into the journey, and we did due diligence process and tried to find out which one was suitable. So. The main thing why we finally ended up with Artificial Solutions Teneo was because it was extensible. You could easily use your own classifiers. You could easily use some cloud-based classifiers of, of some other um, provider, which made it much easier for us to actually um, choose best of breed components and construct the whole dialogue platform with these different um, Pro, pro um, products available. Roger, build versus buy. It's a big conversation. It's it's a, it's a hot conversation, and it sounds it like you've taken you've taken both approaches, um, yeah. and you've done it very systematically as well. So, how do you decide we're going to build this in house versus we're going to go find a solution that does this for us? Um, to be honest, sometimes it's trial and error. So we actually, especially when we look at ASR, we actually started off with the aim to build it all by ourselves. Um, and But you need to review your process and your progress um, um, as you go. And we could also um, constantly observe what progress did all the other vendors make. And so in the end, you, you keep comparing your results with the results that you see on the market. And that's basically what we did um, to negotiate effort versus the cost. Of, um, obviously, when you buy something, it's cash out, and there are some political issues as well that need to be solved within the company. On the other hand, if you want to do it all by yourselves and you don't succeed or you don't get the results fast enough, then you also got to answer questions. So we keep um, we keep comparing the results that are there on the market and the results that we can do in our own projects. And every now and then we decided to um, go a new way and um, saw that this was a successful decision and uh, then we stick with it. So it's something that you, that you revisit over time. For example, your exactly. classifiers, you might uh, decide, hey, there's this new solution that I'm going to go with instead. Absolutely so, absolutely so. We've got one particular component which is currently under uh, closer investigation, which we use in particular for frequently asked questions, um, which is not a full scope dialogue, but you just have one component. If a question, if, if a customer's question matches a particular area, you want to present that answer. Now there's also, again, there's plenty of solutions around and there's some homegrown stuff and um, uh, yeah, we, we do this uh, comparison right now with uh, 
uh, with this one and nobody is sure whether we will still stick with our own classifiers in the near future for intent or, or, or entity recognition, you name it. And so uh, I'm curious, and so what does your team look like there? Because, uh, you know, the the type of skill is necessary to evaluate and mm -hmm. to build if necessary. They're not uh, a dime a dozen. So what does your team look like who's, who's responsible for this? Um, <clears throat> we've got in the whole dialogue the whole dialogue platform is built by about 30 professionals um, I would say about 10 of which are data scientists another 10 are software developers and then we've got UX specialists we've got so-called knowledge engineers um, and a few agile function, agile roles, um, people who do Scrum Masters, people like me as a product owner of the dialog system. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a whole a bunch of people um, trained in totally different aspects. Interesting. Pat, from your side, listening to Roger speak and, and talking about this thing is a moving beast and we'll, we'll get into some de in more details, Roger, in terms of like what it is that you're using it for. I know, you know, there's been news recently around replacing an entire IVR system with a voice assistant and, and your know, voice enabling TV boxes and stuff like that. Um, so on, on your side, pair as, as the kind of provider or the enabler, if you like, for a lot of this stuff and, and hearing kind of Roger, as many companies will be doing and, and uh, over time, over the next five, 10 years or so, reviewing the performance, reviewing the kind of um, the technology infrastructure, trying to optimize performance and stuff like that. How, how does that kind of either change or influence your approach to Teneo and Artificial Solutions? How, how do you approach making sure that you're kind of keeping abreast of where your client demands are going to be in future? So I, I, I think there's actually two parts to that. Number one is uh, how we make our product develop according to what customers want to, to develop into. And the, the main part of that is that we've reconstructed it into be a, a cloud-based solution, which is based on, on Azure. And uh, we're using uh, the Microsoft assets as well, which are also developing quite quickly. So part of it is collecting the demand and understanding what it is that they want us to add into, into the platform. Now, our focus is quite, uh, is quite uh, uh, we're very focused on developers, which means that we want to make it easy to run and easy to develop and maintain your solution, which makes it a slightly different perspective than if we were trying to add the functionality that the business user were needing. Because what I believe is that also, you need people like Roger to really make these solutions work. It's a, it's a, a conversation AI becomes almost like an employee and you would not get, you would not go out and get exact the same employee and train them in the same way as anybody else, right? No company really has that sort of interchangeable employee perspective. But for some reason, there was that perspective on conversational AI. So I think there's two parts. One is you need to make it easy for the developers on site. That could be a partner, right? It could be somebody like CSGI or Tech Mahindra, or it could be just people on site in the center of excellence. They need to be able to always change and collect the demand from the, the customers. And then we need to change and make their life easier. So our focus is very much on making it easier for somebody like Roger to work with the, the platform and provide the real business value out there. And then, of course, there will be new functions, new services within the Azure ecosystem that we need to provide and need to add in. So a very important part for us is what we call backend and frontend connectors. So we don't want developers to spend time on, on simple stuff like connecting into Workday or Salesforce or ServiceNow or connecting into a JSON app or connecting into into your uh, WhatsApp or Facebook. So that we want to make sure that it's available in the public domain and, and easy to develop. And that needs, we need new backend and frontend connectors all the time. It's, that's changing all the time. Interesting. Given, given that there is quite a lot, well, there's, there's like three, four arguably big providers of this technology um, and, and we've seen I don't know if it's the same situation for you Roger in terms of some organizations have 
bits of everything. Some organizations might use like IBM for speech recognition, Dialogflow for the NLU, you know, and then for some intents, they might switch out to Microsoft or they might have multiple bots kind of kicking around using different technologies. For, from your perspective, Per, and I'll, we'll go to, to you after, Roger, because this question is kind of similar, is for you, Roger, uh, sorry, Per, why, why is it Microsoft specific that you're focusing on and, and not necessarily Amazon, IBM, Google? And then I'll, we'll come to you, Roger, and ask the same kind of question, which is what is it that Microsoft is giving you that the others are not right now? So, Per, from your perspective, why the focus on, on Microsoft and, and Azure? Right, and so, so Microsoft is is first of all very focused on providing good valuable services in their cloud uh, and not so much providing complete applications. So they're not really trying to compete with Google Dialogflow from that perspective, um, nor with Amazon Nex uh, or Amazon Connect platform. Uh, so it is very much a something that suits the developer mentality that we have ourselves as well. And then it's also the largest platform by far. So if you look into the enterprise space today. Um, now, we do sell into quite small customers uh, and companies today as well. But if you look at the larger ones, Microsoft Lewis is definitely the one that, that is chosen and Azure is chosen for all sorts of really real enterprise applications. And I think the reason for that is that customers perceive Microsoft to be a, a, a serious player when it comes to protecting your data, and, and all the governance perspectives that, that are around going into a cloud and using a cloud-based service. So Microsoft is, to me, when I talk to our customers, the real stuff, i.e. the production, really heavy applications are on Azure. Um, they all use Amazon, they all use Google. But when it comes to real operations, it's on Azure at this point. So I just believe Microsoft is further ahead in this game. And I also believe because Lewis gets so much traffic that it will develop in the, in a very positive way for, for the customers. Interesting. From your side, Roger, you mentioned languages was important because there's four different languages you need to need to manage. and. How how much like what what were the other considerations when when choosing Microsoft and and is it purely Microsoft? You mentioned you use different things. You know you've got lots of different applications as well. Are, are they all kind of artificial solutions fronted with Microsoft at the back? And if so, what was the decision beyond languages for for choosing Microsoft? Yeah. So basically, the <clears throat> the decision for the decision for Azure um, ASR services was primarily based on the fact that we could take more influence on the behavior we could we could um, adapt um, and specify the models to suit our use cases um, and this was not so easy on uh, with other providers now azure is not the only um, cloud provider we use we also use different um, other components currently we're investigating into uh, how we, the future hybrid cloud approach can look like, but we've also got our own cloud that we've built up within Swisscom. So most of the applications that we've built ourselves run on our own cloud platform. It's a cloud foundry based um, environment. And then, <clears throat> yeah, as we went for the decision regarding the um, dialogue management platform, there we had a few other factors which needed to be um, given, one of which was to run the whole system on our own premises. In fact, when we started, this was a strict requirement from legal and compliance um, because we handle um, highly confidential data, which must not leave Swisscom boundaries. Um, this rule does not apply uh, as much nowadays as it did back when we started, but it's still quite an important factor to understand how well can you secure your data. This is always one um, core aspect that we need to look at when we decide on which uh, provider to choose. But there, Roger, can I just ask, because I, I find now that customers, we're moving two banks, one insurance company, one telco into the Azure-based public cloud now with our solution, but it's still in the Azure cloud and it's not on-prem. 
So I just found that that sort of changed, let's say 2019, end of 2019, 2020, even large banks are now saying it's okay to go into Azure. Indeed, I think Switzerland is a bit slower than many other uh, countries, because especially when you when you speak about banking, we've got um, extremely strict laws and regulations that we have to adhere to. But it is indeed um, softening up, and you can find ways with by by. Um, showing how well you secure the data even though it's not on your own premises that makes in, even the lawyers understand that we need to move on because on the other side you've got so many benefits if you can if you can uh, take a cloud infrastructure mm. interesting M maybe it might be helpful to um I mean, arguably, we probably should have started with this question, but I think we were just so keen to dive into it that we kind of bypassed it, and we did allude to it a little bit. But what what is it that is the customer-facing result of all of this discussion that we've been having so far? Uh, we've mentioned IVR. We've mentioned set-top boxes. Do you want to just give us the lay of the land as far as what voice assistance or voice-enabled applications do you have out there right now, Roger? Sure, yeah. So let me start with the voice assistant that we got on our set-top box. Um, this, is, this was launched one and a half years ago, and um, you can basically control your TV. You can uh, tune the channels, you can search for your programs, you can um, increase, decrease volume, obviously you can play and pause and, and, and all these, all these uh, basic core TV functionalities. But because we wanted it to be a voice assistant, we also added further skills like the um, weather forecast, uh, the news of the day and stuff you know from other platforms like, like Alexa, etc. Um, this ecosystem is growing fairly slowly because of the slow market, a small market in Switzerland. Um, but Alexa has not really entered Swiss uh, Switzerland's borders yet. So um, we're not um, feeling that much pressure on it. Um, but basically this uh, voice assistant is now in every set-top box which we sold for more than a year now so and we've also replaced all set of boxes with this uh, with the one who, which includes uh, the voice assistant so currently i guess we have about one and a half million customers covered out of eight million inhabitants in switzerland so it's already quite a big coverage there Many people still don't use it though. Um, it's interesting because um, people are just slow adapters. We, the, the early adapters, obviously, they, they ran into our shops and bought it when it was announced. But then um, as we started replacing the boxes on already existing customers' um, environments, we realized that they're not really keen on using it straight away. They, you need to build up some trust. You need to teach them that there is a voice assistant around. And um, that was, in the beginning, fairly difficult because the wake word recognition was not good enough. Now we've increased that um, quality. Uh, the wake word recognition is now really, really good. And we can start um, doing uh, commercials again. We can start... Um, telling everybody about the, 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 the functionality they have at their own home without even knowing about it. But because it's a set-top box, you've also got the remote controls, so you always have the chance to also just um, push to talk. You've got a microphone on the remote, and whenever you push that button, um, the stream will be then transferred to our dialogue platform and um, the command is analyzed and executed. So that's a bit um, <clears throat> the area of the TV. Now, the other big area where we use the dialogue platform, where we use um, voice as well as any dialogue management um, capabilities is customer care. Um, our main hotline number for private customers is now fully powered by the dialogue platform. That means 
you don't no longer have to press um, keys on your mobile phone um, with the keyboard, which is um, constantly disappearing, um, in order to get routed to a correct agent. But as you call the Swiss code number, hotline number, you will be prompted to say what is the reason for your call. And that is then um, being processed by ASR. It goes through the dialogue management system. We run it through our classifiers and distinguish which is the correct um, queue, uh, which is the correct agent um, we would route your request to. And the really good thing is that we hit the right target um, Five um, in 88% of all the cases in average with the AI powered platform. Whereas with the old keyboard powered um, DTMF enabled um, IVR, the accuracy was only 80, 84%. Now, this does not seem to be very much, but on the other hand, if you look at the amount of calls we get, if you can have 4% better routing quality, this really means a big cost saving aspect on one hand. And on the other hand, the customer gets his answer to his requests on in, in a faster way um, because you don't need to reroute them. Right? And um, as I'm talking about the customer care, we've also got the chatbot system available. This is not yet full voice powered, but basically you can send SMS, Apple business messages, um, WhatsApp messages, or obviously chat messages on our web uh, site to Swisscom for any inquiry you may have, and you will also be um, processed, your request will also be processed by our chatbot, by the data platform, and then either answered automatically or um, routed to an agent which can help you. Where voice comes in then is obviously people start sending voice messages on WhatsApp. And so far, we cannot um, we cannot use them and make any use of it. But this is a goal to eventually also process these voice messages and through the whole platform we have. Interesting. I never thought about that. It's almost a little bit like uh, in the in the sort of early days of chatbots when people were sending emojis and it would catch people out when people send emojis and stuff like that. It's almost exactly. yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, it seems as though you've got a lot going on and a hell of a lot of capabilities out there considering i mean many organizations are either just trying to get their feet wet with with voice in the ivr or they've maybe he's got a chatbot that they've that they've launched or whatever but i think to have one on device kind of in customers homes application plus you've got contact center plus you've got uh you know the conversational ai on the on the site with kind of like multi-channel with messaging plus chat i think dustin i think in terms of the guests we've had on it must be one of the most maybe it's aside from the bbc from the voice capability side but it's probably the, one of the most sophisticated uh implementations would you say yeah, I think so, up there with BBC and PR, but mm. certainly among the upper echelons. Mm, definitely interesting. Is 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 that kind of your chat, your messaging, your voice, is all of that part of like one overarching Swisscom assistant, even at least on the face of it, if it's not kind of on the back end? Like how do you how 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 do how do you approach that side of things? Um no, it's unfortunately not. I wish it were because it would make a lot of things easier when it comes to uh, designing your persona and stuff like that. Um, but the TV department is um, organized pretty differently from the customer care department. So we basically started the project with the two individual um, internal customer uh, units. So uh, currently there's no overarching strategy in this area, but never say never. Um, or I at least am aiming there, but it's not up to me alone. <laughs> yeah, easier said than done. Often, isn't it? Pear, how how do you from the from the provider perspective? And this isn't something that's going to be 
uh, unique over time, I don't think. I just think that Swisscom is probably in a position that that many are trying to get to as, as far as, you know, voice applications across multiple surfaces, multiple channels, multiple interface types with voice and, and chat and stuff like that. How are you thinking about the future from this omni-channel conversational kind of perspective and where do you see that going? I, and this is one of the reasons why you need real developers building these solutions uh, specifically for you uh, as a company in that everything goes multi-channel now. So all the applications that are built right now are voice and chat. Uh, you need to be able to take WhatsApp. You need to be able to take Messenger, but you also need to be able to take just traditional phone calls uh, into your solution. So everybody's building into a omni-channel strategy. I can't even think of any of our customers right now building a, a pure uh, chatbot anymore. Uh, and also what you're trying to get out of is the uh, the pure rule-based chatbots. Now you may put that into some parts of your solution uh, where it makes sense to sort of click a, uh, like Skoda, the uh, car manufacturer, sometimes it makes sense to click a color instead of saying the color or, uh, or chatting the color uh, of a car. But um, if you start combining simple rule-based and click-through with in- intelligent uh, automation as well and into your back-end systems on the channel, that's what everybody's doing right now. It's just, uh, I, I really cannot think of anybody doing a pure text anymore. Hmm. Interesting. What are some of the challenges that you've observed? That'll be, a, I think, a question for both of you, really. What, what are some of the challenges that you've observed with people trying to do multi or omni-channel conversational AI pair? We'll, we'll start with you, then we'll go, Roger. I, I, I honestly think the first and, and the foremost difficulty is if you, uh, you start it as a procurement process, uh, and that's also why we now make our development platform available for free. You can go in and start developing, and from $500 a month or 500 euros a month, you can also uh, take your solution live because we believe it needs to start as a development project and not as a procurement project because it's very difficult to sort of put the rules on what you're going to need in your solution. You're going to need to be much more iterative like Swisscom have been over time and you need some very competent people building this. Uh, So those are the two things that finding the right competency and it could be like, again, like a partner like Tech Mahindra or it could be a um, uh, that you have your own team, your own center of excellence. But you need some people that really understand the end product and then can build from there. And that that is really difficult. So the ones that we see that have failed are the ones where it's been a procurement-led process. They've decided to build something. Everything takes three years. And at the end of it, nobody really wanted what they were trying to build. So it needs to be much more DevOps-oriented uh, in building. And you need those developers that really understand the end result. So you don't the, the, the choices you make today are the ones that are going to define your solution in, uh, in a couple of months and a couple of years' time too. And if you really wanted to scale and provide ROI, you need to make the right choices from the beginning. Interesting. Good points. What about you, Roger? What do you think are the, the challenges of multi- or omni-channel conversational AI? Yeah, I think there's, there's um, various challenges. One of them which comes to my mind first is really um, we as, as knowledge engineers, as the, the people, as a unit who builds the, the, the platform and then also implements the whole dialogue um, logic, we need to constantly tell our internal stakeholders um, that it is, this is not something that the world has been doing for 25 years now. So we cannot build from experience. Every now and then, we need to be allowed and willing to do experiments and fail in order to improve. So we really need to be able and open to put something out there on the market, observe it very closely, and be fast in adapting if it fails. But we cannot guarantee from the very beginning that this will be a success. It's just what we think based on user testing, based on hallway testing, based on our our, um, our short and little experience we have. We can only hope that this is the next thing that, that makes sense. 
that's one thing. Uh, a second thing is especially vital when it comes to purchasing stuff or um, customer care um, topics. We need to identify the customer. Now, if on every channel you have different identification mechanisms and legal and compliance normally have quite um, clear uh, view or quite a clear mindset of how strongly must a user be authenticated in, or, in order to use a certain functionality. So if you want to, let me say, if you want to pay your bill a bit later, that is not such a high requirement, but if you want to purchase something and, and create new costs, that would then have a higher authentication requirement. And that means that you cannot offer all these, all these functions in every channel. So you need to also guide your customer from using one channel to using the other channel because of such requirements, because you need a better authentication mechanism, for example. And that channel shift is not always easy from the experience perspective. And then um, there's another challenge in my eyes, which is um, omnipresent when it comes to AI. AI is not deterministic. So it is really hard to understand and hard to measure whether the system is doing a good job or not. You need to be very strict and clear about what are the KPIs, what are actually the success factors, um, what tells us if our system performs well or not. And there, depending on who you talk to, you get a thousand different answers and you need to align all those and make sense of them as a whole. But, and just, if I may, but the last point of what yeah, you yeah. made, this is the whole point why you need engineers to run this. It, it's, uh, it's not something you want the business users to start building because it isn't deterministic. And, and when it starts to wave at the end of it, you don't really know what the amplification is going to be, right? So you're gonna, you don't really know what the result is going to be unless you understand this. And to that point as well, we talked a little bit about this near the beginning, Roger, in regards to evaluating and, and moving on to new technologies. But even with new with new training uh, or new data that you're bringing in, you know, you're going to see maybe some lift in some places, some some drops in other places. Sure. What kind of evaluation regime do you have in there, and how do you how do you ultimately make the decision of yes, this is this is how we go about it, even if we're seeing a drop here and an increase over here? Well, to be honest, this is still some of the weaker points in our in our environment. Um, we are right now after two or three years at a stage where we have learned the imp about the importance and this is why we try and emphasize it right now in in the next planning sessions we will really um, try and put a big effort into creating test sets which are not evaluation data which you use just to evaluate the, the, the performance of one single classifier but to have end-to-end -end test data available where you for example have a voice a audio stream fed into the system and in the end you check what's the result after all the processing chain so really testing data that has been built together by by um, technical people as well as business representatives because only they know what the customers say only they know what they expect the system to do um, so you need the two to work together to create decent data which you can then use to evaluate and secondly once you've got it you obviously have to update it with every new use case and you've got to update it every now and then because the language develops people behave differently our customers have different needs depending on the season of the year uh, so on christmas during christmas uh, pre-christmas season we have different requests coming in uh, than for example during summer holiday so um this must be reflected in the test data also, and only then you get um, some measurable benchmark uh, so that that enables you to judge whether a new um, model is, is performing better overall um, or is not. And 
Yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about devs. It almost sounds like that Steve Ballmer video, a little bit developers, 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 developers. And uh, Eric on LinkedIn has a, a similar question is that, you know, you mentioned you have a lot of developers. What about conversational designers? What's the, mm-hmm. how important is it to bring conversational designers in and to use that perspective when building out solutions? Yeah. Um, Firstly, I'd say you probably misunderstood me, Eric. Uh, it's not 20 developers, it's about 10 software developers and, and the other 10 um, technical people are really data scientists. But um, to your actual question about conversational designers, um, to me, it is really very important to have them on board, but they're very hard to find. It's, it's really an issue. We've got two linguists, uh, trained linguists, computational, actually three linguists on board right now. And we've got one designer who, uh, who comes from web design and has slowly moved into conversational design. And um, I want to challenge every approach, everything we do, I want to challenge, challenge with these guys. Um, but we also have to rely on our business representatives um, from the business units within Swisscom, which um, also have an influence um, on the design and on the whole dialogue structure. Um, and these are not directly part of the team that builds the dialogue platform, but they're also part of the projects we work on. Interesting. I'd be interested, Pair, from your perspective, um, we've been talking about the, as Dustin mentioned, the kind of the value and importance of having solid technical foundations. Um, and you can see straight away when you use certain tools that you'll find out there, you, you can hit a limit with them. You know, the, the, some of the drag and drop interfaces. Uh, and, and at some point in time, you, need, you kind of need to break out of that mold. And, and, and most of the time we've found that, as you probably have yourself, building things is you just get more, more control, basically. You can make it do whatever you want to do. Um, however... When we talk and you hear Roger there talking about, you know, we need we need business subject matter experts in here and conversation designers, you know, there's a, there's a, a whole influx of linguists coming into the field and, and writers and, and all kinds of people who are, they are creative and they understand how dialogue and, and all that kind of stuff is put together and how a conversation should look, but they're not technical, they're not going to code the solution and they, they may not even kind of technically kind of spec the solution. And so there's a little bit of a movement, I suppose, kind of undercurrent maybe of the notion of democratizing AI in terms of making it more accessible for non-developers and having more kind of like, you know, drag and drop, low code, no code kind of builders and things like that and, and and putting this stuff into the hands of non kind of technical people where do you see the future of this kind of democratization do you do you think that 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 it's going to get to a point potentially where it's it, it, it is democratized and a little bit like uh you know wix or something like that anyone can just go and build a website regardless if is if you understand how you know what's going on or do you think that actually because it's we're dealing with language language is very complex computers really don't fully understand language yet and so they need a helping hand do you think it's always going to require some degree of of technical uh development and is that always going to be an approach or what are your thoughts in general about the notion of democratizing ai so i, I can start yeah uh, sorry that was you yeah it, it was a oh, long wind it was a very long yeah. question but i, I did okay, mention so that i managed to forget who you were but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh i so I, I think the most interesting part of that question is uh, is uh, uh, time. And uh, if you say that in 2030, it's going to be like developing a website, then I think you're right. If you looked at developing websites in the end of the 90s, beginning of 2000s, uh, the people that were trying to make it low-code, no-code were the ones ending up with websites that couldn't be used because they were too heavy to download or you know, all the sort of technical difficulties. AI, because it's not deterministic, is somewhat more difficult than that. Uh, and language is very difficult. So uh, it's it's definitely far away to be able to make it no-code. Uh, make it low-code, maybe. What we're trying to do is just make a tool that's easy to use and also easy to not make mistakes in. So easy to guide you into the right way of developing. But as soon as we have self-driving cars on the roads, which I thought would be long before we had the uh, 
uh, no-code AI solutions, then uh, then I think we'll have another five years before uh, before you can develop this yourself. However, the linguists and the, the conversational designers that you're talking about, all of those as well, need to be specific for the specific customer. And like uh, Roger mentioned here, it's even difficult to test the solution depending on if you're looking at testing it for the Christmas season or for the summer season. Well, let alone trying to make test a solution for 90 telcos across the world in different languages, uh, that's not going to happen. So at this point, it still needs to be very much a team of developers, a team of, yes, absolutely, conversational designers. You need conversational experience people. So uh, uh, you could always talk to the guys at Rook's World about that. Uh, you need that engaged as well, as well as a lot of good engineers. So we're far away from local, local. Interesting. What, what do you think, Roger, in terms of, I mean, you've got a lot of technical skills, a lot of data scientists. Um, is everything you do built from the ground up? Is, is, is the, what are your thoughts on, on this notion of, of democratization and, and putting it in the hands of, of anyone? I, honestly, I didn't think so much about that recently because um, I really believe in bringing people with different backgrounds together. And for me personally, it's always important to try and connect people who don't uh, usually speak with each other so that every part can start to understand what are the other one's concerns and why can you, for example, not do X, Y, Z because of a technical reason or why is what um, somebody thinks is a good UI um, not really good from an experience perspective. Only if you get these people together, they can learn from each other. And so I really believe in, in, um, in having many people interact together. That's a big challenge, but I like this sort of challenge. Um, it, it, sometimes I feel a bit like uh, being an interpreter between different worlds, um, but that was nothing different when you look back 20, 25 years and you had uh, uh, a back-end developer <clears throat> and a front-end developer, they wouldn't speak the same language. You had to interpret these so that they could together build something great. Only if you manage to, to, to um, if you manage the, to, to give each one understanding for the other side, only then you started to be successful. And I think this is how we human work. If each of us has um, his, own, his, his and her own particular interests, area of interest and also skills, and only when we bring them together, when we bridge uh, the gap, then we can be really successful and build something, something great. Mm. You mentioned one of the challenges was kind of defining KPIs and, and understanding how to measure these things. Um, so I'd be interested to get, again to get both your perspectives on this because, Pear, you, you, you've got a lot of other experience with other clients as well, so it'd be nice to understand how you're, how you're observing this being approached. But, Roger, from your side, what is it that you arrived at at the end? Are you focusing more on like technical KPIs, like the performance, accuracy, things like that? Have you got kind of like business KPIs alongside it? Like how did you arrive at those KPIs and, and what kind of stuff are you looking for? Well, there are some which are fairly obvious, which is just availability of the system, the stability of the system, the throughput, and all the technical aspects that you don't really need to talk about. It's like given. But then it comes to the business use cases. Now, how do you judge whether an interaction with a voice bot was successful or not? You can, for example, say, okay, if the call or if the chat which is sent onto the system is being transferred to an agent, it's not successful. But that may actually be a business decision to have this transfer because we don't want to treat people who just suffer from a personal loss uh, to treat them with a bot. We want to hand them over to some, uh, some, some other human being who has some uh, empathy. Um, then that means that the whole transfer to an agent is actually a successful thing. So the bot did recognize the situation correctly and did the right thing. So eventually you end up discussing with the business what are the indications um, of success. And for business, very often it's automation rate, it's how much money can you save. But for um, UX-oriented people, 
this is not really the most important thing. This is much more uh, that they, they would ra much rather listen to an interaction on the voice bot or read through a chat transcript and see if the dialogue was a human-like dialogue. Now, how do you measure that? It's only by reading through it and labeling it. So that means, again, you need to invest some time after the transaction has already been over to evaluate this uh, based on some uh, on some guidelines that only a human can, can uh, process and collect the data manually in order to calculate those KPIs. So there's really different, different areas and um, we try to uh, find out the most relevant ones as we speak to our customers, as we speak to our uh, stakeholders, and also as we speak to our developers. Interesting. What are you observing, Pair, from from some of the other clients that you're working with? Like, how how are how are others measuring success? Is it similar to what Roger's saying, or have you noticed any any other trends uh, out there no, with other clients? I would say it's all of that. But in, in summary, the the with this these systems, you still end up with a human basically scoring the system, and it's very difficult to produce a dashboard with KPIs automatically. So. There's this notion of uh, uh, successful sessions that many people talk about, but like Roger said, you know what what uh, the engineers may find successful may not at all be what's successful for the business people. So it's very difficult to grade and and measure the KPIs with anything else than humans actually looking at it. So we find that surveys is what many customers are using to try to understand the the customer sentiment. But then again, we all know surveys are not everybody responds to surveys, so you end up uh, having to guess a whole lot uh, on on what the experience is uh, in your in your solution. But I think that's the biggest issue that humans need to grade the AI, and we're quite far away from it being the other way around. Right, so interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's the only th it's the, it's the hard part, isn't it? With like, because you can always uh, you can always do things like did that answer your question for example but people are just hanging up but and especially with with set top boxes where it, it's not always as it's, it's sometimes it's just a, it's a command isn't it do something and it's very difficult to to determine whether if there's a mismatch and you didn't quite get the intent right or whatever and it didn't happen it can be quite difficult to kind of pinpoint pinpoint that um is there any is there any kind of um, for other organisations looking to to do something similar? Whether they're doing something for you know devices like set up boxes, whether they're doing chat, whether it's voice, you've you've got an incredible amount of sophistication as far as the team's concerned. It's a fairly big team, fairly proficient team. You've got a lot of solutions out there. We've spoke a lot about. Um, understanding the the measurements and, and KPIs. We've talked a lot about technology choices and things like that. Is there any other kind of considerations, even at a high level, that if, if there's an organization now, as many of them are, will be tuning into this, who are either starting out, maybe they've got like a, a chatbot they want to scale, maybe they've got an IVR bot that they want to do something more with. What are some of the fundamental kind of considerations that they should have as they start to scale their efforts? One of the most important things to me is that um, when a company wants to start, when, when you don't have anything yet and you know that you want to go towards uh, conversational AI, um, is that you should really start with a very small and narrow use case and build your experience in that. Make it good, make it really, really good, but don't make it, uh, don't try to have it cover everything, every concern, rather make one particular use case and also communicate it to your users. Communicate that this is the bot that can help you with X, Y, Z, and we do not help you with some, something else. And then as you gain experience in this narrow field, then you start adding use cases, case by case, and, and, and then go broader. Um, we've done it differently in uh, some projects, and um, the experience was that it was always uh, really clumsy because you cannot be good in everything from the very beginning. And if you're not good, people are not going to use it. So better don't be broad and bad, but be narrow and good. 
and then extend over time. Wise, wise advice. Per, what, what, what would you, what would you say for for those starting out, or they've got something looking to to start scaling it and advance on it? What, what would your key considerations be? I would say start. Uh, so go to uh, teneodevelopers.ai or our site and start uh, using Teneo to start building. But the key thing is to start building. And um, we have customers that have very small teams that are building uh, large solutions with small teams. We have customers like Roger with very experienced teams that are building very sort of cutting edge solutions uh, on the platform. But the, the common thread is go ahead and start building and start understanding the demand by actually building and trialing it. And don't try to plan it out for years. Uh, don't wait until you've hired all those people. Um, even Rogers had shortages in the team from time to time, but it it will be that way. Uh, so, you know, get there, get in there and, and start building. And if you have a chatbot already, you already built something, chances are that you started building a couple of years ago and you may need to change some things in your architecture in order for it to scale, but go ahead and start. Uh, so my, my main, what I would like to say is just like building out anything in today's IT world, there's available components, there's available components for integrations, there's available components for starting out uh, and, and de- developing in a DevOps environment is far better than trying to plan it into absurdity. And then as you go along, you're going to start interacting with your teams, asking more and more questions about, about your customers, what the customer wants, and designing the experience better and better. But but do go ahead and start. Hmm. I, li- I like that, the, the approach of not trying to fight the world, not trying to take on too much, not trying to go down. I mean, it's it's almost like putting the cart before the horse, isn't it? If, you, if you're going through a, a huge procurement exercise of a huge platform and you're going to pay huge license fees and a massive implementation cost and you haven't actually even put a little smoke test, a little kind of thing out into the market to even understand the kind of conversations you should be having, uh, you know, how your customers interact with you. You can start a hell of a lot quicker and a hell of a lot cheaper especially with with the you know the the cloud solutions and with artificial solutions and you know the, some of these kind of um tools you don't have to kind of fight the world and i think that's sometimes that's probably one of the barriers actually to starting is that i think people think that you need to do everything tomorrow yeah that's right but uh yeah but roger you you one final thing i know we were supposed to touch on this uh and we didn't but i i'd like to squeeze it in because um it's it's very similar to um methodologies and and approaches that i've covered and worked on in the past in fact when it comes to addressing your architecture so maybe as you start out with something small you start out testing the waters you learn you develop you scale and you get to the point where you've got either multiple conversations happening in one environment or you've got multiple solutions across different channels. When you get to that point, you could have multiple different systems, you have a lot of a lot of architecture going on, it could get quite complex quite quickly. But before we started this, we had um, the discussion about this modular approach. And we I used that approach in the past on digital transformation projects, whereby rather than trying to procure a huge system that does everything, Maybe we just try and find a payment component and the payment component can be used across all services across the business. Maybe we find a booking element that will book you appointments and that booking appointment can be used across all services, horizontal across the business. And that's kind of the same approach that that we tend to discuss when it comes to conversational AI. Is that your kind of approach when you talk about this modular approach? Is it trying to isolate every piece of capability and assembling it in that way or, or is it something different? Uh, pretty much so. Pretty much so. Yeah. Um, even we, we we do even distinguish, for example, between dialogue management and contact management. So um, when it comes to choosing the right channel to talk to the customer, this is not a decision that is based on the dialogue management. But what to do once you've decided which channel to use? What to do in the dialogue is then part of the dialogue management. So it's it's really, we're trying to break it up into digestible pieces. And um, we always try to find an architecture where you can easily replace one for the other if something better comes across. 
um, or if you find out that what you've been doing so far is overhauled and you can get something from the market out of the box which performs much better we want to we want it just to be easily exchangeable um, in order to always be um, at, at, at the edge of, of, of what's possible. Now, obviously, once it is live, you're not that easy exchanging every bits and pieces um, just instantaneously because you need to um, engineer it. It must um, at least give the same um, the same stability. Your engineers or, or, or your operation guys need to understand um, if this uh, component behaves differently from what they have known, and that always takes some time. So we're not going to exchange um, modules twice a year. Um, but we could um, if, if there was a need. Mm. Interesting. Nice. Dustin, any final thoughts? Any final questions for Roger and Pear? No, no, I think we finished strong. Thanks so much for, for joining us. I think this was really fantastic. It has been wicked. We, we've, we had a flurry of people join in, in the last 10 minutes. Um, and so if you are joining, apologies for, for missing it. But if you would like to see the whole thing from the beginning, uh, then please do go to vux.world forward slash subscribe and, and you'll get an update on Monday morning when it's out on the podcast and by the time YouTube's processed its its uh, its thing. Uh, and if you do want to try artificial solutions in Teneo, then go to developers.artificial-solutions.com and pair you said it's a free it's free to get up and running and then you only pay when you go live you can pay to go live uh, 500 bucks yeah per month cool and, and in our infrastructure so you don't need anything really cool nice one well do that try that out and and roger where can people follow your thoughts i know that you you've kind of uh, on linkedin posted bits here and there where can people learn a bit more about what swisscom are doing and, and follow your your progress absolutely yeah sure okay cool thank you roger Thank you very much, Roger. Thank you all. Absolute, absolute pleasure. And Pear, absolute pleasure. Uh, really glad we could do this. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you all for joining us as well. And uh, next week, we'll be with a text tour, or a text two, I think it's a text tour, talking about uh, training speech recognition systems. So this is going to be very specific, a real deep dive into training speech recognition and ASR. So I'm looking forward to that one. Do join us next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Until then, see you later.